when trumpets were mellow and every gal had just one fellow. No need to remember when, cause everything old is new again. Hello everyone and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, I'm the managing editor of SlashFilm.com and the host of the Slash Filmcast. And joining us today, he is the man who played Patrick in the 2005 film The Importance of Blind Dating, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm, I'm very good. <laughs> I'm, I'm, let me tell you about The Importance of Blind Dating. And this is very important for everybody. When I did Importance of Blind Dating, I was at a, one of those many low ebbs that a lot of times actors face. There, were, there was a huge period of time where I didn't have any auditions. There's a huge period of time I didn't have any jobs. And these people were doing a short film, and they said that they would pay me a $500 honorarium if I would be an artist in residence and do this kind of personal project, this little film, a 15-minute film that they'd show at AFI and a few places like that. Well, I agreed because I was not doing anything and I was desperate for anything at the time. And beside the project being delightful script, the people I met on the project uh, have been friends ever since. And not only have they been friends ever since, but they've helped me along the way ever since. I was uh, working on a play, and it turned out the producer of Importance of Blind Dating had had already produced the play I was in, and they provided our entire set for free. So there's no – when you say yes to things, in this business in particular, you have no idea where that road will lead. Uh, David, I should mention – that, you know, you try studiously to find roles that even I don't remember I, I do. And, and you always avoid the roles that everybody does remember I do. The foremost being, can you guess, can you, David Chen, guess the number one role I am associated with around the world? All right. Uh, let me try and think. Um, <laughs> Carl Venable from Pope Dreams. Yes. No. <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, okay, give me one more guess. Uh, Happy Chapman from Garfield. That's a close third. Uh, I, that's a close third, especially with the five-year-old. Okay, 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 okay. Uh, Walter Westfield from the 2001 TV film The Gene Pool. <laughs> You're killing me here. Okay. I, I forget that David Chen has access to to roles on a resume that I am not even access to. Okay, 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 you're right. Okay, okay, let's stop joking around here. Numericles from Hercules. No, yes. <laughs> no. Ned Ryerson in Groundhog's Day, David Chen. Whoa, Ned, whoa, hold on. That was you? That was me. And In fact, uh, I recall... Uh, I, I know I've told you this story. I don't know if I've told it on the podcast before, but when I was in Iceland, on, this is before I broke my neck. Uh, on that trip, I was at the Helsinki airport and I accidentally walked down a wrong hallway and set off all the alarms and all the police came out, all three police in Iceland and pulled out the gun or weed whack or whatever they use for weapons in Iceland. And then the head cop came out and looked at me and says, oh, it's Ned. 
So even in Iceland, even in Reykjavik, they, they know me as Ned. Uh, and that's what I wanted to talk about today because we've studiously avoided talking about Groundhog's Day. And I thought people would enjoy some behind the behind the behind the scenes stories from that movie that everybody is familiar with. Um, I don't know if you know this, David, but, but I feel that there, in your experience, I feel that there is a simple formula for success in Hollywood. It's a three-part equation, and one, you have to be good. You have to be good in a good movie, and you have to be good in a good movie that people see. Okay? It's simple. If any part of this equation is missing, you could register your efforts as a miss. If you're great in a terrible movie, that's useless. If, if you're terrible in a great movie, ouch. I mean, that hurts to even think about. If you are great in a great movie that nobody saw, then David Chen will bring it up at the beginning of the podcast, and it will be, it will be the stuff of trivia games. Uh, it's daunting when you think about it, because so many elements are out of an actor's control, even his performance. The directors, the editors, even electronic monitoring of test audiences have more say than an actor of what ends up in the final cut of a movie. Even using these stringent standards, Groundhog Day was a successful movie. It made money. It showcased Bill Murray in one of the great comedic performances ever, I think. And the movie can make you laugh 50 different ways with an assortment of great character actors. And it was brimming with powerful moral ideas. Over the years, I've gotten letters from an amazingly wide range of fans who use this movie as a motivational tool for an equally wide range of groups. Um, I heard from a class in Buddhism that use it. Uh, doctors working with trauma patients, teachers working with at-risk kids, and it's even used, believe it or not, as a training film for an NFL team. The list goes on and on and on. The movie is used because it touches a nerve. It is an American classic. But I never experienced Groundhog Day as an example of the well-made comedy even though it is, but rather as an example of very risky guerrilla filmmaking at its best. It's a movie that flirted with disaster and even worse, mediocrity at every turn. But for the attitudes and dare I say courage, I'll use that word, of Harold Ramis, our director, Danny Rubin, our writer, and Trevor Albert, our producer, this movie could have turned out to be what everybody expected it to be when it was released a run-of-the-mill comedy that was oh-so-prevalent at the time, with equal portions of dopey jokes, crudity, and a slacker view of the world. Oh, I remember when I first read Groundhog Day. That was the impression I got. I mean, the movie worked, but I certainly was not blown away. It seemed to be a boilerplate Bill Murray comedy. It, it existed at kind of the same philosophical plane as a Jennifer Lopez comedy where they continually put in jokes about how large her butt is, which somebody can explain to me some other time. Whenever I watch a Jennifer Lopez comedy, I feel like I'm watching a foreign language film on another planet. I keep elbowing Annie saying, was that a joke about her ass? Are they saying her ass is big? I mean, is that good or is that bad? I, I don't get it. 
The first version of Groundhog Day had Bill Murray put in a series of situations where he had no consequences for anything he did. The entire movie was made up of Bill wrecking cars, sleeping with various women, committing various felonies, reveling in mayhem until he gets bored of it and changes. I thought the selling point of the movie was kind of a chaos wish fulfillment. The method of delivery was a sort of science fiction repeated day structure for the film. Sidebar. As a rule of thumb, it is difficult for a film with a science fiction spine to rise above the level of mere cleverness. Because at some point in time, you're going to have to have the deadly scene where you explain to the audience how it's all possible because of a rift in the space-time continuum, or there's a new top-secret government time machine, or a meteor from another galaxy turns everybody into a vampire. Whenever that scene happens in a movie, you can officially put a stake in its heart and call it stupid. And Groundhog Day had that scene. It did. Yes. Yes, it did. In the original script, Bill is rude to a woman who works at the television station where he does the weather, and the woman happens to be from the islands and knows black magic and puts a spell on him. Miraculously, Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin cut the scene out and in its place left the almost unheard of choice is that there is no reason at all for the rift in time. Ironically, the elimination of the black magic scene is what enabled the movie to possess real magic. When I first read the script, the repeated day premise that we all recognize now as the height of cleverness was for me a real moral quandary. You see, I had just been asked to play the central role in a very low-budget movie called 15 Minutes to Noon, produced by Chanticleer Films. The movie used the same device as a narrative tool. Fifteen Minutes to Noon was a drama in which I think it was a professor is caught in time. The same day is repeated over and over again until the writer and director realize they didn't have an end to the movie, which is about 20 minutes of screen time. And so then they had the hero kill himself. It was pretty depressing. But it isn't much of a leap to think that somebody took that premise added Bill Murray, sexy women, and a modified beaver in an attempt to craft a sellable comedy. Was Groundhog Day an example of big guys ripping off a good idea from the little guy? I was debating as to whether I should even go in on the audition. Was I supporting Goliath over David? And while I debated the moral pros and cons, I started working on my two audition scenes. I decided the part of Ned Ryerson, the insurance salesman, was fun, and I always wanted to meet Harold Ramis. And eventually, I did what most people except the Dalai Lama and the Amish would do. I blew off the moral concerns. I drove over to MGM Sony Columbia, whatever the studio was calling itself back then. Even they were confused because they had all three signs up. I had no idea I would actually be reading with Harold Ramis. He read the Bill Murray part, and I can't think of any other time in my career when I actually read with the director of the movie. Several years down the road, Harold and I were at a benefit that used Groundhog Day to raise money for troubled kids in Santa Fe, and I asked him why he chose to read with the actors instead of the usual, which is having a casting director, assistant casting director read. Harold said he had always been an actor, and he felt people coming in would feel more comfortable reading with someone good. 
yeah, <laughs> he was right about that. It certainly was better reading with someone good. However, I don't think he properly appreciated the uncomfortability factor for an actor to read with the guy who's judging your every move for a potential job in a huge movie. So I used a technique that Stanislavski talks about in An Actor Prepares for My Audition. I said to myself, okay, I'm uncomfortable. How uncomfortable did Phil Connors make Ned Ryerson feel in high school? Ooh, pretty uncomfortable. Good, so I'm in character. How much is Ned willing to do to get Phil to like him? Ooh, anything and everything. We started the audition and I was all over Harold like white on rice. I stroked his hair. I licked his shoes. I tried to unzip his pants. I did everything but fix him breakfast. Harold was so taken aback during the audition that he was both laughing and considering filing charges for assault. Afterwards, I apologized for being all over him. I knew that I I played the part a little broadly. That is an understatement. I think the way I played Ned that afternoon would have been more suited for the Roman Colosseum than that little room. Harold was tucking in his shirt and giggling that it was all right. He said that Ned could be broad. He said, Ned was the spice in the stew, not the stew itself. And the spice can always be broad. My first audition went very well. But you can almost never get a part like this in a big movie with only one audition. They always want a second or a third or a fourth look. And I got the call later that day that I was going to get a call back sometime next week. Again, reading with Harold. Now, I started to worry. You see, I was shooting another movie at the time for Columbia, Sony, whatever, called Calendar Girl. And I knew I was going to be on location next week, and I worried about being available to audition for Groundhog Day. It would not be easy to get back to Los Angeles. We were shooting in Paris. California! (laughs) Paris, California! Yeah, I do that just to tease myself and pretend I'm John Travolta. Paris, California was the hot air balloon Mexican gang capital of the state. And it was going to be a tough drive back on the 215 freeway through Riverside to get back for any audition. I thought time and location would be my biggest complication. But life is very funny. The obstacle I had was far more personal, far more difficult than anything I could have imagined. In Calendar Girl, I was playing a gangster with a deaf-mute brother. My brother was played by Kurt Fuller, who is truly one of the funniest people I've ever known. He's a wonderful actor, and more importantly, he's an exceptional golfer. While we were shooting out of town, the producers, for cost-cutting reasons, go figure, had Kurt and I staying in the same hotel room. That first night, we were lying in the dark like kids on a sleepover, and we were talking and talking. And Kurt asked the typical actor's question, what I was working on after Calendar Girl. I said, nothing. I've learned from hard experience that this is the best answer to give other actors. No one really likes to hear you're working or auditioning a lot. The only other answer you can give that's better than nothing is to say that you're actually leaving the business to go back to your hometown to open up a sandwich shop. I asked Kurt what he was up to. He said he was doing a Bill Murray movie next, a movie called Groundhog Day. 
Harold Ramis was a personal friend of his and was directing, and Harold had written a hilarious role for him, the role of an insurance salesman, Ned Ryerson. Pause. Insert the picture of a brain exploding. The real definition of fortune is not something we're generally willing to accept with any degree of comfort. I looked it up, and I shall repeat it for your future reference. Fortune is the hypothetical force or power that favorably or unfavorably governs our lives. I'm sure about almost everything in that definition except the use of the word hypothetical. On this particular night, that hypothetical was going to keep me awake. I asked Kurt when he was starting. He said he wasn't sure. He did a read-through with Bill and the entire cast a month ago. I knew at this point that I was going to have an unfortunate role in this story anyway, it turned out. Someone was not getting the straight story, and in the end, there were going to be hard feelings. I didn't tell Kurt that night about my audition. I got back to Los Angeles for my call back the next week. It went well. I heard I got the role. I showed up in Paris for our next set of scenes, and Kurt was furious and felt enormously betrayed. All I could say was that I was sorry, and I wasn't aware of what was happening behind the scenes or making any casting decisions. Years later, I got a piece of the puzzle. Harold told the audience during our question and answer session in Santa Fe that after my first audition, he called up Bill and said, I found our Ned Ryerson. He's the most obnoxious person I ever met. Kurt was let down with any number of things the producers say to actors in a ridiculous attempt to make them feel that losing the part was the best thing that ever happened to them. This business is littered with hundreds of faint compliments that are given to soften the blow. In my career, I have been told that I didn't get a part because I was too nice, too sweet, too sophisticated, too country, too cute, too good, too busy, too bald, too tall. It's a lot like being a loser on an online dating site. A note to producers and casting directors of the world. You should understand that we as actors understand that you're only saying these things for yourselves and not us. We're actors. All we want is the part. Everything else we prefer to get from our wife or our dog. Kurt came to the premiere of Groundhog Day. When the movie ended, he came up to me and put his arm around me and said, You got my part, but at least you did a good job. Congratulations. He patted me on the back and smiled and left. I have admired Kurt for many things he's done on and off the screen, but I probably value those few words more than any other. In a way, they set the bar for courage and class very high in a profession that tends to value those particular commodities as a necessary evil. Put on your white suit, your tap shoes, your tails. Put it in backward when forward fails. And movie stars you know now long dead, now afraid beside your bed. Don't throw the past away. You might need it some rainy day. Dreams can come true again. When everything old is new again. 
there have been many movies made about making movies, and they always have characters playing the producer, the directors, the makeup people, the costumers, even the extras. But for the life of me, I can't think of a single movie about making movies that has a character playing the UPM. That's code for the unit production manager. The UPM is one of the most important people involved with making a movie. And as an actor, your life can hang in his or her hands. The UPM is responsible for hiring most of the crew, making the schedule, making sure the movie comes in on budget. I got a taste firsthand on Groundhog Day how important a UPM was. Since Columbia, Sony, whatever, was making both Calendar Girl and Groundhog Day, the studio used the same UPM. This UPM was the same guy that put Kurt and I in the hotel room together in Paris. And because the UPM knew exactly when I was shooting Calendar Girl, he was able to manipulate the schedule to shoot my last scene in Paris, California, have it finish on time to have a car drive me to the airport to get the last flight to Chicago, to have a car waiting for me at the airport to drive me to Woodstock, Illinois, where we shot Groundhog Day without having to give me an extra day to travel, a morning to pack, to say goodbye to Anne and my three-year-old son, Robert, or to have a night in between to sleep. They were able to move my shooting on Groundhog Day up an entire day, saving Columbia, Sony, whatever, at least a couple hundred dollars. I left Paris, California around 5.30 p.m. I arrived at the B&B where I was staying in Woodstock, Illinois at 3 a.m., where I had a message that I would be first up to shoot in three hours at 6 a.m. My first big scene, meeting Bill Murray on the street. I still had my makeup on from Calendar Girl. I took a shower and told myself that I was an actor. You could pretend you slept, but that didn't work. My alarm went off an hour and a half later and I was so tired I was ready to cry. I got up and I looked in the mirror and had the second conference hour of my life. No lies. No excuses. I told myself that today was the most important day of shooting I ever had in my life. And there was no time for whining or complaining. I was living the dream. Paradoxically, in this case, the dream included sleep deprivation. Stealing a page from the Holly Hunter playbook, I said to myself, screw it, let's do it. I went down to the street and saw Harold and Bill having a little chat, and I wandered up to them, and Harold started to introduce me to Bill, who's standing at 6'3", 6'4", is quite an imposing figure. Bill cut Harold off from his polite preamble. He turned to me and said, so, what are you going to do? Is it funny? I went through a couple lines of Ned, complete with my hand gestures and the sound effects. And Bill just stared at me and then held up his hand and said, okay, okay, you could stop. That's funny. Bill looked around and there were about 500 town folk gathered to watch the shooting at dawn. And then he said, you know what we need right now? And I said, no. Bill fixed his eyes on the horizon and in a completely deadpan tone said, Danishes. We need a lot of Danishes. Come with me. Bill took off running with me trailing behind. He ran into a local bakery, pulled out a wad of cash from his pocket and said, I need every Danish you have in this place. Bill and I left. 
with boxes of bear claws and donuts. Bill started tossing them at random to the townsfolk. Everybody was laughing and cheering. Bill was like a lightning rod. I don't think in a universe of possibilities, Bill could have done any one thing that could have united the town any more and put them on our side. We shot the first street scene that morning. In between shots, I looked at the crowd of people observing us, and I saw a familiar face watching me. It was one of those faces that made me think I died on the plane to Chicago and I was living in some type of Twilight Zone episode where everything you thought was real was unreal. Hey, kind of like the movie Groundhog Day. I saw the face of David Nichols. Who is David Nichols? If you look on your IMDb, you will see that David Nichols works in the art and design departments on movies. However, there's some things that don't show up on the IMDb page. When I grew up in Dallas, David Nichols was an underground star. He was a brilliant actor who would pop up in avant-garde productions all over the city. I was a kid 15 years old. I had been very sick for four years. My illness forced me out of being in athletics, and I spent a lot of time indoors, a lot of time reading, reading plays. And I started getting interested in acting. I got cast in my first leading role in high school, where I played a 70-year-old man, Arpegon, in Moliere's comedy, The Miser. Our teacher, Mary Curtis, brought in a secret director to put our play together. That man was David Nichols. David Nichols was my first real director. David Nichols taught me the discipline of acting. He taught me my first lessons in comedy and timing. David gave me a love for the theater, and in a very primal way, I wanted to grow up and be David Nichols. Fade out, fade in. Next time, after high school, I saw David Nichols. It was my first week I moved out to Los Angeles from Illinois. He was working on the movie New York, New York, and he invited me down to the set to have lunch with Robert De Niro and Martin Scorsese. My first week in Los Angeles. Fade out, fade in. The next time I saw David Nichols in my life was in Memphis, Tennessee. He was the production designer of Great Balls of Fire and was at the Radisson Hotel the night of the three tornadoes, the night when I married Anne. And now here he is again. We shook hands like we were old friends. Seeing David again now the fourth time in my life made me think this day would be special. And it was. The chemistry between Bill and I worked, and I felt the first day of shooting was very successful, and I ran back to my room to reward myself with sleep forever. I got a call the next morning to have a meeting with Harold Ramis. When I got there is when I had the first inkling that this film was going to be very different. Groundhog Day has a very unique problem. Because a single day has to be repeated over and over again, it requires that the day look the same. Movie audiences never realize what that means in terms of shooting. Think about it. Every day in the movie is actually the same day. That means it has to look like the same day. And a movie takes several weeks to shoot, which means logistically that not only do you have to have, of course, the same clothes and the same makeup, the extras have to be in exactly the same places. But what also has to be exactly the same is the weather. 
Harold explained that because the weather in upstate Illinois could be very volatile, currently it was in the low 20s with driving wind and occasional snow, we would have to cover ourselves by shooting all of the outdoor street scenes in different weather conditions. That way, in the editing room, he could choose what the repeated day would look like and keep it constant, and he would also be able to choose what the day would look like when time starts again. As a result, we not only had to shoot the same day in the script over and over again, but we reshot it in the rain, in the snow, in the wind, in the sun, and in the northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin gloom. This predicament had another trickle-down effect, because no one... Not even the weathermen knew what the conditions were going to be on any given day. We were never given any days off. If it suddenly started raining, I would get a call from the production office saying, Hey, Stephen, it's raining. Get down to Main Street as fast as you can, and we'll shoot the first scene again where you meet Bill. So we not only had to remember what we did in the various street scenes, all of which were shot slightly differently, but we had to remember them over and over again at the spur of the moment, kind of like the movie Groundhog Day. Needless to say, it kept us looking to the skies. The real psychological effect was that all of us focused on the movie instead of the diversions that inevitably become the center of your life when you're shooting on location. We were always poised to work. I've only heard of one other case where this was the norm, and that was the great John Ford. used to keep all the actors on call for his westerns that shot around Monument Valley. He wanted the option of shooting whatever he wanted with whomever he wanted if the light and shadows were right. In the final cut, Harold Ramis used the Illinois-Wisconsin gloom as the constant for the repeated day, and when snow starts to fall near the end of the movie after Bill carves that ice sculpture with Andy McDowell, as when time starts once again. I speculate that somewhere there are three or four other complete versions of the movie shot in other weather conditions in a vault ready to be sold on eBay when Sony, Columbia, whatever, need the cash. Here's a trivia question. There was only one scene that doesn't fit the repeated day concept. What is it? Clues? There's only one scene we shot in the movie where there is sunshine. We couldn't help it. We were working with a difficult performer. What is it? The answer. When Bill steals the groundhog and drives off in the truck. We kept waiting for the clouds. They never came. And we were only allowed to shoot with the groundhog for a short period of time because, as we were told, they tend to get temperamental. Well, join the club, Mr. Groundhog. Every movie I've ever worked on has a tipping point, a sort of fulcrum where events, performances, studio, whatever, where the eventual character of the film takes shape. Nine out of ten times, it's a shrug of the shoulders and the powers of B saying, eh, it's good enough. Now, where do we want to have the rap party? But if I could point to where the fulcrum on Groundhog Day was, where the movie changed from being a clever but predictable comedy to something very special, I would have to say it was during the first week. Here is one episode, one decision, one rewrite that seems to encapsulate the entire transformation. The first week, we shot a gigantic set piece. This was to be the scene where Bill realizes that time for him has stopped. The first main plot point of the movie. In the original script, 
Bill gets the inkling that he's caught in a loop of time and living with no consequences. He gets that devilish gleam in his eye, cuts his hair into a mohawk. He spray paints graffiti on the walls of his hotel room. He pulls out a chainsaw and saws the room into two. He wakes up the next morning, and lo and behold, the room is restored to its old-fashioned charm, and Bill realizes he has no consequences and celebrates. Now, if you know anything about filmmaking, you understand how expensive and how difficult this scene was to shoot. Everything you destroy in a scene, you have to have another copy of in case you need to reshoot or shoot it from another angle. Every time Bill used spray paint... It had to be cleaned up off the wall, and everything had to be restored for another take. The hairpiece for Bill having a mohawk took weeks to make at a cost of thousands of dollars. And you also have to factor in the cost of time. The scene took three days of shooting. Three days that something else wasn't shot. Three days of paying 70 or so people on the crew to make it happen. It was also being filmed at the beginning of the shoot when executives are watching every move you make to evaluate if time, money, and film are being well used. There's lots of pressure. So here is the moment. The moment when the movie changed. Harold Ramis finished the scene, looked at it, and threw it away. He and writer Danny Rubin huddled together and decided that the movie they were making was really quite different from the movie everybody thought they were making. Harold Ramis is a practicing Buddhist, and he felt the themes in the movie were more profound than Bill Murray with a mohawk and a chainsaw. Harold and Danny huddled up and decided to make a serious movie about the time of our lives. It was three days of expensive shooting down the drain, and it was the best money the studio ever spent. Harold Ramis replaced mayhem with poetry. Instead of the chaos, Bill Murray goes to bed that evening, terrified. Before lying down, he breaks a pencil and puts it on his bedside table. In the morning, the clock radio goes off again. It's the sounds of Sonny and Cher singing, I Got You, Babe. Bill wakes up and discovers the pencil is whole. Bill's eyes fill with horror, disbelief, then a sort of excitement as he enters a world where he is completely alone. The effect this scene had on a viewing audience was palpable. I saw it in the theater with real people. There were gasps. You could feel a shudder pass through the audience created by a perfect, simple visual statement. Instead of people thinking, oh man, that Bill Murray is such a wild man, they were suddenly invited into his personal nightmare. From that moment on, the entire script changed. Over half of it was rewritten while we were shooting. So now we are in guerrilla filmmaking mode. Danny Rubin seriously tackled the question of what happens to a man who has no consequences. And what is it that give our lives value? And the movie became funnier than ever. Amazing. While we were shooting, we would be getting rewrites that were literally hot off of the presses. The entire final act of the movie crystallized when Bill realized that want was different than need. He became fulfilled not by having sex with Andy, but by having purpose, by saving a boy falling from a tree, by helping old ladies with a flat tire, by saving the mayor from choking, and 
as he becomes more aware, he has less and less time to do all he wants to do. And he even has to deal with his own limitations with a homeless old man whose life he's unable to save. The script became a work of art on a level that would be appreciated by the likes of Aristotle, who felt that comedy should display man in his entirety, torn by extremes and eventually triumphing over his own nature and even the capriciousness of fate. The film had replaced predictable chaos with genuine surprise. And I had a couple surprises still waiting for me. (laughs) I had finished my role. And I flew home. And I remember my first day back, I kissed Annie. She took me by the hand and said there was something she wanted to show me. She had taught Robert something special. She called on her son, who had just turned three, and said, show Daddy what you can do. Robert started laughing, ran to the front yard where he dropped his pants, and started peeing into the bushes. As new parents, we had already learned to lower our expectations and cause for celebration. But I remember being truly thrilled that in my absence, Robert had actually learned something that was going to be useful and would serve him well the rest of his life. The celebration was cut short when producer Trevor Albert called me up at home. He said, we need you back. We decided we're not done with Ned. So I had to head back to the frozen north. I got to Woodstock, and Harold told me that Danny was working on a scene at the final party where Bill plays the piano and is auctioned off and is bid on by all the ladies in town, and they wanted Ned to make a surprise appearance as Bill and Andy leave. We were shooting in an American Legion hall, and we had this location for one week. I never got any pages for a final Ned scene, and Bill was not wanting to shoot any more Ned scenes. I sat in my trailer. No one gave me any updates. So one afternoon, I wrote a scene. I wrote a scene where I had all the dialogue and Bill had the joke. We got to the last day of shooting on location, and I showed Harold my little script that I wrote. Harold showed it to Bill. Bill agreed to shoot it, and with two hours left before losing the location, we shot Ned's final scene at the party, the one I wrote, in one take, and it's still in the movie. Now, that's a moment worthy of guerrilla filmmaking as well. Bill was not easy to work with. No. And he certainly was moody and opinionated. And if I had been on my first movie, he would have brought me to tears more than once. But Bill is an incredible actor. He never phoned it in, and he was determined to make every take count. And here's a story that illustrates both Bill's. A crisis happened on the set near the end of filming. It was the final scene where Bill realizes that time starts again. It's huge. It's a six-page dialogue scene, and you'll all remember Andy and Bill fall asleep together in bed. And there's a moment of blackness. The clock goes off. Bill's eyes open with terror. He's alone in the shot, and the camera starts to pull back. And then, surprisingly, Andy's arm crosses frame and turns off the alarm. It's a new day. When I saw this movie in a full house, the audience actually began applauding. It's another scene that's breathtaking in its simplicity. It's a scene that almost didn't get shot. Bill refused to shoot this all-important scene. Harold Ramis and Andy McDowell were exasperated. They wanted to get on with it. Bill said, absolutely not. 
he wasn't shooting the scene unless he knew what he was wearing. Harold Ramis said, what do you mean? Bill said, am I wearing all of my clothes? Am I naked? Am I wearing pajamas? Is my shirt unbuttoned? Did we do it? Harold was surprised. This is actually a pretty good question. Did they do it? Harold asked Bill what he thought. Bill said, hey, I'm asking you. Amazingly, Harold said, let's take a vote. He pulled the entire crew working on the movie, and it was a tie. It came down to a girl who was an assistant set director. It was her first movie, but she was unintimidated. She said, he is dressed in the clothes he wore the night before, all of them, absolutely. If you do it any other way, you will ruin the movie. Harold Ramos smiled and said to Bill, you're dressed in all of your clothes. Absolutely. If you do it any other way, it's going to ruin the movie. Bill nodded, and that's the way they shot it. Even the final moment of the movie was an example of guerrilla filmmaking. It's a wide shot taken from the window of Bill's hotel room looking out at the town. And this is the shot. He's supposed to run out of the little inn with Andy, open the gate, take her by the hand, and run off down the street together. But the real weatherman intervened again. It snowed the night before. And whenever it snows on a movie set, there are lots of problems. There is always snow hitting the camera lens and the difficulty of getting accurate focus marks. But there is the big problem of footprints. There are always hundreds of sets of footprints left in the snow by work boots of the crew setting up the shot. And all of these footprints have to be swept away every time the cameras roll. Harold told Bill that he would have to be ready to stop after every take while the crew dealt with the footprint cleanup. Bill said, screw that. Roll the cameras. They did. Bill and Andy ran out to the gate. Bill saw then that the gate had been snowed shut. So rather than calling cut or breaking up the shot, Bill lifted Andy up into his arms and carried her over the gate. Then he jumped over, creating an improvisational crossing the threshold moment that was unexpected, romantic, and they got it all in one take. Now, almost 20 years later, Groundhog Day has become a classic. No one does that for you. It's done by time itself. It's created when generations respond to a story you're telling. And I have a theory. And my theory is that in the case of Groundhog Day, the story that draws us in is not just the delightful one of weatherman Phil Connors trapped in time. I believe that we as viewers sense that in a world of paint-by-numbers filmmaking, Groundhog Day broke the mold. And it's a mold that was broken by people taking risks at every turn, all the way down the line from Harold Ramis throwing away the conventional in week one to an assistant set designer on her first movie, Speaking Her Mind. As C.S. Lewis put it, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point. Groundhog Day stands as an example of the test. And that's why we have rewarded it with our own sort of immortality, the gift of laughter through time. When trumpets were mellow And every gal only had one fellow No need to remember when Cause everything 
That was the classic, a series of stories told by Stephen Tobolowsky. Stephen, you know, actually, let me ask you this question: uh, When you interact with your fans, who most often have seen Groundhog Day, uh, what are some of the things they say to you? Like on the street, do they ever just say random lines that Ned has said to you? Or I, I think the number one question people ask me is, "What was it like shooting?" over and over and over again, which, of course, is what you do on a movie anyway. But one of the most unusual things that ever happened to me was I was shooting uh, a movie in Utah, and a couple teenagers came up to me and said, we were heard you were on the movie, and we wanted to show you this. And they reenacted the entire scene with me and Bill Murray by memory with all the movements and everything in it. Wow. That, to me, was the wildest. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so you don't get that many obnoxious people shouting at you like, watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. <laughs> I do, but they're not obnoxious. I get that all the time. Uh, one of the most unusual places, I was in a forest in France and went to a ruined castle in the middle of nowhere, and they had a French ticket taker there, and he looked up at me and goes, Oh, Bing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that was very unusual. That was very unusual. Nice. Uh, Well, anyway, uh, let's wrap things up for the the episode, Stephen. Um, How can people find uh, you on the Internet if they'd like to reach you? I think uh, Stephen Tobolowsky at uh, gmail.com. And that's S-T-E-P-H-E-N. T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O, L, O, W, S, K, Y. And I'm also at twitter.com slash Tobolowsky. And at Facebook, what, what is that address, David? Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowsky. Thank you. You're Thank getting you. A lot, we're getting that. a lot of messages from that uh, as well. So that's a good way to contact Stephen, too. Um, you can find me, in case you're interested in my other work, at uh, twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen, S-K-Y. And SlashFilmCast.com. I want to give a big shout-out to SlashFilm.com, a movie blog. Uh, check them out. They are the host of uh, our Stephen Tobolowsky files, like the literal MP3 files that we use to bring the show to you every week. So uh, check them out. Give them some love if you have a chance. And that's going to take us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. See you guys later. Bye-bye. Get out, you white suit. Your tap shoes and tails Put it in backward when forward fails But leave Greta Garbo alone Be a movie star Yeah.